Leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Welcome to Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath, where experienced leaders share their own brand of leadership to help you develop and improve your own leadership capabilities. And now, here's your host, Dr. Gary. I'm Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. Welcome again to Leading from the Front, where leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Today's guest is the CEO of Flip. Flip is a planning and savings app that helps shoppers provide for their families by making life more affordable. Flip's business has surged since COVID hit because of a growing pool of value-conscious, digitally savvy shoppers. Families need to find savings now more than ever, and Flip is a one-stop marketplace for digital savings and deals from your favorite retailers. He is responsible for leading Flip's vision to become the number one source of savings and deals across North America. He joined Flip as the Chief Consumer Officer in 2018 and became the CEO last year. Previously, he was the founder of Fancy, and he's had a previous career in finance. It's quite obvious today's guest is an entrepreneur, but with a degree from Harvard in biological anthropology, it's not obvious how he became an entrepreneur, and we're going to find out today. Please welcome to our program, Michael Silverman. Hi, Michael. Hey, how you doing? Thanks so much for having me. So, Michael, I don't know if you had right out of college, if you were right into finance, working for big companies, a lot of times that's what people do when they uh, leave college. And then you got into entrepreneurship, right? So how how did that happen? What was the the transition from like a what we would call a regular job diving into being a founder of a, a dot com company? So I, I think unbeknownst to me, I had the DNA makeup of an entrepreneur. You know, probably well before I ever became one, which was I am a risk loving person. Uh, you know, whether I'm an adrenaline junkie in in some portions of my life or willing to take sizable career risk. That is something that's always been sitting under the surface. And in university, I went to school and I studied biological anthropology because I had every intention of becoming a doctor. My father's a physician. You know, my mom's a psychologist. Uh, I always was very talented at science and math. I always assumed that that's what I was going to do. And I think I had a, you know, crisis of conscience when I was leaving university where I said to myself, you really have to love this and be a thousand percent sure that you want to be a doctor in order to commit the next eight years of your life of grueling pain and low pay to to get there. And I ultimately decided that I wasn't ready to make that commitment. And so I just dove headfirst into the first thing that came up. And that actually, ironically, or maybe not ironically, was investment banking. <laughs> and so I did investment banking for a considerable period of time leaving university. And it was a life-changing event, not just because... It was a great experience in discipline, but it was also, it introduced me to entrepreneurship. It's where I met my first co-founders, and then I met my second co-founder there, and then I ended up leaving to start a business. And it was, you know, that was the beginning of the end, if you will, for me, in terms of catching the bug for entrepreneurship. So I, what did that feel like, though, to, to jump off the cliff? I mean, to go from having a paycheck to saying, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this and, and be an entrepreneur, because for some people, that's... That's a very, very difficult decision. It doesn't sound like it was a tough decision for you, but it still you had, still had to have a little bit of uh, concern. Yeah, you know, the first thing that really hit me was investment banking was it was a it was a nice paycheck, 
and it was certainly a intellectually stimulating and challenging job. Uh, and I, you know, like I ultimately attribute my work ethic to my time spent in investment banking. And no offense to any investment bankers out there listening, but I just wasn't excited about the value I was adding back to the world in that job. And so it really wasn't a very big leap for me. I, I was yearning to do something where I felt excited about waking up in the morning, looking myself in the mirror, and then going out to do my job. Uh, and so I wanted to generate value. I, I felt bullish on my IQ points and my capabilities and my competency. And I felt like there was more that I could do out there. And I saw other smart, hardworking people doing big things. And I, I felt capable of doing the same. I think I wildly underestimated just how hard it was going to be. And I trivialized that as a 20-something-year-old. But I couldn't be happier that I made those decisions, not just because it worked out in some instances, but also because, you know, life-altering perspective as a result. Yeah, so it's it's interesting you talk – one of the things you talk about we, we have as part of our leadership program is the, the book Grit by Angela Duckworth. And, you know, she did a whole bunch of research on this. No, no big surprise that success is connected to hard work. And like you said, your work ethic. So you, you knew how to do that. You knew how to work hard. And not everybody in their 20s get that. And if you're going to be an entrepreneur, I don't know about you, but I, I went from having a regular job in my first company, like back in the, in the 90s. And what I realized was doing my best wasn't necessarily good enough. I had to do whatever it took. And I mean, ethically and legally, I don't mean, you know, doing something wrong like that. But I mean, you you know, my son's an entrepreneur and I got an email from him at one twenty six in the morning telling me how hard work was necessary. Right? Yeah, no, totally. I just sent, uh, I have a newborn. And so maybe it's not fair because I'm never sleeping anymore. But uh, I sent out a model at 4.45am to one of our colleagues, and he thought I was crazy. But, you know, we have something time pressured, and I needed to get the work done. And this isn't like, you know, there's no, hey, let's delay it a day, you know, things need to get done, you need to, and, and you it's, one of the things I stand by is like, you never ask somebody to do something you're not willing to do yourself. I, like that's a principle I live by in entrepreneurship. And so, you know, I would never ask somebody to put in an all nighter or work super hard uh, if that wasn't something I was willing to, you know, sit by them and, and do it at the same time. But here, to get back to your original point, the grit and resiliency and you know, like that is not something I had entering university or exiting university. I think I had a I had a good time in university, and I you know I got reasonably good grades, uh, but I certainly wasn't as focused as I should have been. And I watched a, a bunch of really ambitious people around me be deeply focused, and I don't it never really clicked. And then it really wasn't until investment banking that I learned what it meant to like have a deadline, stay up all night, stay up all night, several nights in a row in order to get your work done because there was no other choice. And that was really just a great foundation for how I perceive working. And I'm not saying that FaceTime or late hours are always necessary, but what is necessary is whatever you need to do to get the job done, as you said eloquently. Well, and and there are times, you know, when you're leading an organization as a CEO, you've got to demonstrate to other people what you're willing to do in order to succeed. They're going to you can say all you want as a leader. You can you can it's all BS until you do it. You know, I can I can remember with some of the teams that I worked with, I'd be like, well, you know, it's Friday afternoon at five o'clock, but uh, we've got to get this proposal done for this new client on Monday. Okay, do you want to work on it tonight or you want to come back tomorrow? And when they say, well, we'll come back tomorrow, I said, what time? Eight o'clock. Okay, so I was there with them. And to your point, not only do you not 
ask others to do what you wouldn't do. But if your people are working extra, I would always be there with them. I don't just walk out the door and say, oh, I see you're busy or, you know, walk out. Now, there were times when I would be waiting in my office and they say, are you waiting for me to get done? I'm like, yeah. And they go, look, dude, I, I don't need you. Go home. So they became the boss. You know, and I'm like, okay, I'll go home. That's fine. But they give you permission because you're demonstrating to them you're going to do whatever it takes to help them succeed as well. And that's what leadership is about. Yeah, I totally agree. I I mean, in the most cliche of phrases, leading by example, right? So I actually, this cuts both ways, though, because I will tell you there are times where one of the founders of the business flip that I'm running today, we, we decided to take summer Fridays and we have no meeting Friday afternoons. And I was a, I I still am struggling with not being a violator of that concept. Um, And so in part, because I have a lot of work to do and I want to make sure that I get it done and I want to catch people during office hours, but we all agreed that we weren't going to take meetings afternoon on Fridays. And um, one of the founders came to me and he said, listen, you, you can't, you know, say, you know, do as I say, not as I do. If you're going to say no meetings on Friday afternoons, then you have to have no meetings on Friday afternoons. And it is a good lesson. You know, like we're trying to inspire good work-life balance. Uh, That's the other side of this coin. And, uh, you know, it's not fair for me to tell people not to work at certain hours and then do it myself. So, you know, there's, there's certainly both perspectives to this. Yeah, you're you're right about the, uh, the cliche, you know, lead by example, but it's not a cliche. You know, it's it just absolutely isn't. Yeah, it's an axiom, probably. Yeah, I guess it would be a uh, it's a it's a rule. It's a law. You know, we'll call it all kinds of things. Right. But yeah. uh, it's it's absolutely necessary. So as you've moved down your, your path of leadership with these entrepreneurial firms, what do you think are some of the key leadership capabilities that the CEO has to demonstrate in order to be successful with their people? There's so, I, I could rattle off like a hundred. I'll focus on a few. So I'm a firm, firm believer in transparency. I I can't I can't imagine doing my job today where I was obfuscating facts or keeping things from certain people or only letting certain people at a certain level know this or know that. Quite frankly, I, it would be too distracting for my day to day job. I far prefer to tell everybody everything or to tell anyone anything, uh, you know, like that's, it's just a, it's a much easier way to, to lead. And then I think that my favorite part about transparency is that when we are having issues or when we do have a problem, it puts a, it just shines a light on it. And so instead of us, you know, putting it in the back of our heads or pretending it's not there, it gives us the opportunity to work on it improve and change. Uh, and so transparency is, you know, it's critical. I also like, I just say morally, ethically, I don't like signing up to a contract with employees where, you know, we're, we're doing right by each other uh, and I'm doing anything short of, you know, telling them everything. So transparency is probably one. When you, but when you talk about transparency and you say share everything, you, I mean, we can talk about goals and strategy and direction and customers and all that. Do you also share financial information with them? Every, everything down to the penny. We, everything. We, yeah. There's nothing, yeah. there's nothing happening at our business that, yeah, I mean, like, you want to be careful with information overload. I don't. I don't need every employee wasting their day going through our income statement. Uh, but we share our top line, our bottom line, our expenses uh, at high level. And if anyone were to ever ask me any detail about our finances, I would one hundred percent tell them. Cool, cool. Open book management. I can remember reading that book many years ago. Yeah. You know, yeah. I'd say the, an- another big one is 
and it, it reared its ugly head last year is managing through uncertainty. You know, like it's important to be to leverage data and information to build a thesis and be confident in your thesis. But ultimately, you have to be prepared for the unknown and be willing to pivot and change your thesis if you gather new data. Uh, and that's a, that's a big part of being a good leader. And, and I think last year, you know, COVID hit. We had no idea what was going to happen to advertising budgets because we had no idea what was going to happen to advertising budgets. Um, we had to be conservative with cash. We acted proactively instead of waiting for things to happen, which was our decision in that uncertainty. And you know, because we acted so conservatively, it ended up benefiting us last year, and we had a we had a great year as, as a result of that. So, have you ever had any challenges with that when you're sharing everything? Do uh, some people sit there and if you're profitable and they go, "Well, you're going to pay me more"? Or, I mean, uh, where's my piece, right? Yeah, I mean, always. Like we we are a profitable entity. A you know, I wouldn't say deeply, deeply profitable, but we we make a sizable uh, EBITDA margin in our business. And of course, you know, like uh, I have a corporate development perspective on why we maintain a profit and what we're looking to do with our balance sheet and like, you know, what my long term goals are for the business. And I share those thoughts and I'm honest and direct with the team about why we're building up a a cash balance. Um, And it's certainly not just a dividend cash to shareholders. So ultimately, you know, we should all benefit because we have an intention of putting that capital to work uh, to invest in. Um, high growth opportunities to, to, to acquire against our, our business line. So there's an easy conversation to have. Sometimes it's difficult to help people understand like the difference between profit and cash and um, you know financial terms. And I think people sometimes hear that we're profitable and ask the question that you brought up. But um, I think if you're clear and honest, there's it usually surmounts that challenge. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then you can have those honest conversations either way. Right. Yeah. Yeah, Always. Yeah. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about the vision of your kind of company and, you know, it's a big deal. I mean, it's, you know, what you're trying to do is not any, any small vision that you want to uh, improve people's buying experiences, saving money for, for, for consumers. I mean, that's pretty cool. How is flip different than some of the other things that are doing that? Yeah. So there's, there's a whole wide array of ways of saving money when you go shopping. But let me let me take a big step back. There's like a, a little dirty secret in the retail industry, which is th- they want to get shoppers into their stores or onto their website, and they're willing to offer deals to get you there. Uh, and so the classic analog model of our business is that every week at your doorstep, Somebody used to drop either in the Sunday newspaper or directly to your mail. Somebody used to drop a packet of flyers. And those flyers are an advertisement of all the deals that are available in store. In, in Canada, it's like just an advertisement. In the U.S., it also includes a, a book of coupons. Yep. And you can, you can walk into the store and find those deals or you can bring the coupons into the store to redeem those deals. But they're doing it for a reason. They're doing it because they want you into the store so that you... You know, open the doors and you see this huge array of opportunity in front of you of all these things you didn't even know you needed, but suddenly now you need. And that's how, this is effectively called merchandising. So it's it's taking all the merchandising that they do in store and it's marketing that merchandising. And so the analog version existed for decades. Um, and there was trade leverage going back and forth between retailers and CPGs for the last four or five decades. And then ultimately, the internet 
you know, exploded, apps exploded, people were mobile, um, they wanted to get this information digitally. And so Flip invented a way to take all of that flyer information, all that weekly ad information, and bring it into a aggregated experience for the shopper so that they could both browse and search the deals that are near them locally. Uh, and that's really influential because 75% of households in North America, head of household shoppers who have an intent on saving something like 80 plus percent of head of household shoppers use the weekly flyer, but 75% of them are looking for choice. And choice implies making a decision among the retailers that you could potentially go to for that week. So um, if you're in a city where you drive a lot and you pass by a strip mall and that strip mall has uh, a Kroger and a Walmart and a Safeway Albertsons and a um, if you're in Florida, it has a Publix and you have all this you know, opportunity to go shopping anywhere. Ultimately, how are you deciding that you're going to buy your Cheerios at one place instead of another place? So you're buying apples at Kroger instead of Safeway, or you're buying um, Tide in one, uh, you know, at Safeway this week instead of on Amazon this week. How do you make those decisions? And most, most North Americans make that decision by being influenced by a deal or several deals. And what we help do is we help our retail partners and our CPG partners connect with high intent shoppers who are looking for that deal information in order to make an informed decision about where they're going to go shopping that week and which items they're going to buy. And the the reason that this is a huge and burgeoning opportunity is because it speaks to hundreds of billions of dollars of advertising spend that happens in the retail landscape. And when you think about that by comparison, uh, in the United States, for instance, you know, Google, Facebook, all these digital landscape players they probably play in the neighborhood of a few hundred billion dollars of advertising that gets spent with them. And that is really around single item high intent purchasing. So ultimately, if you're perusing the internet with high intent, it services you incredibly well for low frequency, high value items. So let's take right. a computer, for example. You want to buy a computer, you go onto Facebook and you're stalking your ex-girlfriend's photos and you come across an ad for <laughs> Dell uh, and it shows you Dell 55 times, right? That's called brand marketing. They're, they're, they're putting the brand inside your head. And then subsequently, you're, you know, it's three in the morning, you're watching YouTube videos for the last four hours, and then an ad comes on and it extols all the values of why a Dell computer over an HP computer. And that's called consideration. And so now, you, now you've been thinking about uh, Dell, and now you know why Dell is so great. And then ultimately, you're making a decision about what you should buy, and you come across a deal to buy a Dell computer that incentivizes you to buy Dell over HP. Then you go to the website, you buy it. Two days later, it shows up on your doorstep, free shipping. That's an amazing experience end-to-end. End-to-end. Now, let me ask you a question. What is the digital version of that for bananas? Yeah. That's we have we have one you know store that we primarily go to and watch their flyer and we try to buy it when they're on sale. But by the way, my 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 wife's gonna love Flip because she's a coupon nutcase. I mean, I'm I'm gonna tell you right now, I can't even buy my beer unless it's on sale. Okay, I've got to you know which so I've I've, I've got to hoard it. I'm just saying, I got to buy enough to keep me till the next sale. So you're right when with retail the the daily kind of stuff that we buy like bananas or beer or whatever it might be, you, you kind of stick with one store, but to find out where the deals would be in maybe five stores that are in your area, we, we have a lot of options in this country and we're not taking advantage of all those options. No, and, and, and Flip helps you do that because you actually, you bring up an interesting point. 
Coupons are one way to save money. Cashback programs are another. What deals that are happening in store that are on promotion is another. Deals that are happening in store that are not on promotion is another. Uh, E-commerce offers is another. Everyday low price providers like Walmart is another. High low providers like Kroger is another. So there's there are multiple ways to save money when you're doing your regular shopping. And ultimately, if you're just looking at coupons or you're just looking at price promotion or you're just looking at rebates, you're not getting an informed picture. And then subsequently, you're not probably providing for your family effectively. Mm-hmm. And so we help our shoppers save an average of $45 a week on their regular shopping, uh-huh. uh, which you know it adds up to thousands of dollars a year. And that's, that's really impactful for people's lives. Um, you know, in a world where I think there was a CNN study a couple of years ago that the average American can't handle a $400 emergency, we can help people afford that. We can we can make an impact on their regular shopping activities so as to save them that kind of money so they can afford those instances in their lives. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. So as you grow your company and move forward, what are what are some of what are your plans for the future? And and I, you know, the biggest thing people are everything. Right. You can have this great idea, but if you don't have uh, app developers and good people to develop the application and really stay in front of it and build partnerships and all kinds of things. How do you find the application developers, the people that are really putting the, the time in to build this product out? And make them part of the vision that you have and, and the, the mission, the energy, the values of Flip. How do you do that? It's, I'm so glad you brought that up. It's, I think it's actually the part of the answer from the question before that I failed to include, which is you have to invest in people, period, end of story. To be a great leader, you have to invest in people and you have to focus on developing and building careers for people uh, and making sure that you are, we believe in something at Flip called servant leadership, that, that you are doing everything you can as a leader to serve the team effectively. And so we have a whole bunch of stuff that we do. I mean, I think you actually touched on one really big part of it, which is we try to clarify the mission and vision of our business so as to create a, a more centered working environment uh, for our team. So they, they know why they're waking up in the morning to go do something uh, and how we intend to accomplish our, our goals. Uh, and so, you know, we, you, you read it off earlier in the, in the program, but we're on a mission to help our shoppers live life more affordably. And we do that by building the number one platform for distribution of local savings and deal content. And we are, we're out there building all the technology behind it. And then in our hiring practices, you know, we're, we're militant, if you will, about who we hire and why. And so our entire company, um, you, no one's going to be able to see this but you, but we, we keep, everybody keeps one of these on their desk. Um, these are our cultural principles and our values. And so uh, we hire people who align to our values and who we believe will fit in culturally. And our values are pretty straightforward. We have what's called H3O, highly intelligent people, humble, and you know, uh, other-centered and uh, hungry. So the, the person has to be ambitious and they have to be smart and they have to be able to be other-centered. Other-centered for us means that they have to come to work every day thinking about their peers, their customers, their shoppers before they think about themselves. Uh, that's a very important value that we look for in people and we test for it in our hiring practices. Uh, and then the second piece of it is that we have a whole bunch of cultural principles that we like people to adhere to. So you know, we ask people to help each other be great. 
to work hard and celebrate harder. You know, and 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 there are other here the five total principles. There's raising the bar, uh, act with an entrepreneurial spirit, and have each other's back. Uh, and so, in the interview process, we test to see if somebody displays these characteristics or has shown evidence of doing it in the past to ensure that we stay focused on who we are at Flip. And I have to tell you, in my career, I have worked at many places, but one of the critical pieces of the decision framework for ending up at Flip for me when I was made the offer was I wanted very much one of three things. I wanted very much to work at a culture and not an organization. And starting from the founders until today, so over 14 years, um, Flip has been a culture and it has been central to the company's success. So when when you when you interview people and you interview for these values and and really the, the core of why you're in business for what your business, have you ever had a uh, an applicant who was like a superstar, but there was just something about that person that you kind of had this question mark in your head about their values. And maybe it wasn't a strong feel. I mean, it's it's easy when, when it's obvious, right? It's easy when it's obvious. It's not so easy when it's not obvious. Have you hired somebody like that against your intuition only to find later that it was a bad hire? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, uh, if you're going to be a good entrepreneur, you have to be willing to fail. So, uh, you know, in every walk of your job. Um, so we we make large strategic decisions. We build theses. We test them out. We're wrong. We do something else. Similarly, in, in hiring, right? Um, you know, it's, it's not infrequent that the personality you're referring to, that we at least call it, is a brilliant jerk. Like, you can find an exceptionally brilliant person, high IQ points, or they will be highly intelligent and potentially very hungry, but maybe not humble and other centered. And sometimes you'll get greedy. You'll see this person with all this talent and ambition, and you'll say, man, we, what, what could we do with this person? And then they show up, and they're not willing to support their teammates. Uh, they're not willing to give credit to others when they perform successfully. Um, and it, you know, it's it's cancerous. It, it, it enters the organization and then it infects everybody else. Uh, and then you don't just get a bad performance out of that person. You get a bad performance out of the team. And that's that's terrible. And so I think we work really, really hard. We're scrupulous in our hiring practices to try and find the right people. But yeah, we make mistakes left, right, and center. Uh, those people enter and we try and make sure that those people exit mutually pretty quickly. Yeah, it's uh, interesting in my experience uh, across the years. Uh, first of all, when I worked for Procter & Gamble and was interviewing there, I found out after I was hired, I was surprised that I got hired when they told me the way they do it, which is you go through a couple of days of uh, six or seven people that interview you and then they get together on the last day and they say, so do we want to hire Gary? And if anybody says, well, yeah, but if it's a yeah, but you're out, you know, because that means there's something about the person. Now, if they're experience, if it's experience or technical knowledge or something like that's different, but if it's a yeah, but about their character or the way they come across it, that's, that's it. And it's really interesting. I, 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 I made that mistake as you you talk about it. I made that mistake early as a vice president of sales and marketing. You get some s- superstar salesperson, their resume is there. They, they look good. They say everything right. You ask the right questions, but there's just this little, little niggly feeling in the back of your, your abdomen that's saying, eh, no. And every time, I mean, every single time I hired that person, they ended up uh, being what I call an emotional black hole in the organization where they yeah. just suck the energy out of everybody else. Yeah. Those are, 
they're not few and far between. That happens frequently. It's one of the many challenges of running a business at any level of scale, right? Uh, it's much easier to suss out those people earlier on uh, in a smaller organization. It's much easier to act on saying goodbye to those people uh, earlier on in an organization when there aren't huge dependencies or large amounts of revenue depending on it. But uh, yeah, I mean, those that happens. I, you know, the other thing I want to say is we are scrupulous. Um, and we do, you know, try to hire very effectively and we do make mistakes. And I'm sure I'll have teammates who will listen to this. I guarantee you we have some mistakes in the company right now, right? The people who we haven't done a great job of either supporting to make sure that they, the, the, all the potential they had to fit into our culture, we make sure that they do. Or there aren't people who, um, who really necessarily belonged and we thought they did and it's not working out and we're not moving fast enough to say goodbye. That, that happens, you know, like um, we're, there's... There's no such version of this where it's perfect. We, I'm fallible. Our management team is fallible. We work really blanking hard uh, to make sure that we don't make mistakes, but we're bound to. And, and that happens not infrequently. Yeah. And I, I, I love the fact that you're willing to talk about making mistakes a lot because as an entrepreneur, we know that, well, uh, the statistics show that most entrepreneurs fail three or four times before they have a profitable business. You know, it takes them a while to figure it out. And I know when I started my first business, I didn't have a freaking clue. I mean, I've, I'd been in the army. I was in manufacturing. I started my first business because I got a couple of contracts to do training and stuff. And I learned within a few years that I was going to be working for somebody else the rest of my life unless I did a few things. And I've spent, I spent 20 years doing that, writing a couple of books, getting a doctorate, have my own programs. So you, you, you learn from these, well, well, I don't like to call them mistakes, Michael. I like to call them experience. Totally I'm, a very, I'm a very experienced person. <laughs> so, no, I, I, it, it sounds silly, but it's completely accurate. I mean, I've had some successful business ventures in it personally, financially for me in my, my entrepreneurial past. But despite that, I mean, man, the number of times we failed, reinvented the wheel, did something inefficiently, didn't think something through sufficiently. It's it's innumerable, in fact, and I think you know I could have looked back at that and said, "Man, I could have made so much more money if only." But the reality is, I'm a I'm ten times the business leader that I would have been if I hadn't had those experiences and learned from them. So, yeah, the, you you know, again, here we're touching on another example of this, but another quality in leadership that I didn't touch on before is that you have to be willing to try, fail, and inspire others to do the same. So. You know, I think one of the things that happens to me uh, in my CEO position is I say that frequently, but I can tell there's like trepidation inside the organization where we're looking to innovate, but people are like, man, I don't know. I don't really want to rock the boat on this one. And then I have to show up and really like get people jazzed up about it because I really do want them to, um, you know, mess things up. I'm trying not to curse really hard. It's not easy. I'm from New York. But like, it's, you know, like I, I really want to get people to, to, you know, tear it apart and rebuild it. And uh, I think often people are really nervous about doing that because we make a lot of revenue, we make a lot of profit, and it seems like uh, it's a scary proposition, but we'll we'll never innovate, we'll never grow unless we try and do those things. Yeah, and I think like you were saying, I and I really like what you said before, you want to be part of a culture, not an organization. And, and to me, with the right culture, with the right values, and you were saying, we make mistakes, I want people to make mistakes. It's not whether the mistake occurs or not. It's what happens after the mistake. And there's one thing I want to add to what you said, where you just say, you know, it's okay. People make mistakes. We make mistakes. It's all right. Without 
blame. We made a mistake. We, if we do something, whether it's in a department, a division, or the whole company, if we go after it, everybody's to blame, quote unquote. You want to blame somebody? Blame everybody. Okay, enough of that BS. Let's move on because blaming doesn't get us anywhere. What have we learned and what do we need to do differently tomorrow? What do we need to do differently today? That's the only thing that we can do to improve our experiences that we call mistakes. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm an avid reader of all things business related. Um, there's a great book by uh, a couple of former Navy SEALs called Extreme Ownership. Yeah. Um, and the two things I love about it in terms of a sense of accountability is if you're the leader, the buck stops with you. You know, like somebody could have missed the mark on something. Somebody could have done a poor job of budgeting. At the end of the day, in proper servant leadership, that's that's on me. That's my fault. I, I, there is certainly something I could have done to make their job more efficient, taking obstacles out of their way. And I don't see that as blame. I see that as an opportunity for us to re-envision in things and then work on it and do it differently. And I, we more often than not, we do speak in the we. Uh, and I think the team thinks about like, how did we do something wrong and how can we do something better? Uh, but one of the things that I think is important in leadership is you know wearing it squarely on your shoulders and being accountable and being honest about it and, and seeing how you can re-envision the scenario a second time over uh, where you do something differently to support your team more effectively. Well, yeah, and you, you mentioned extreme leadership uh, with Jocko, and he he tells a story at the beginning of it where they they really they they lost some people in a firefight, yep. and uh, when the question was asked, who's basically by upper leadership, who to, who's to blame, or where do we point the finger? And of course, he said me, and then his whole team, each one individually, stood up and said, "This is how I contributed to this. This yep. is it's my fault, and this is why." And and the fact of the matter is. Um, I, I have a client that I work with. I've been working with for 12 and a half years. And the thing I love about their culture is the old thing where they don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. If you've got somebody that's got the values that you have and you have the ability to find a seat on the bus, take the opportunity to find a seat that they can fulfill because it's really, really hard to people to find people with that value alignment. And yes. they do that. They'll, they'll have people work there two, three, four years try three or four different jobs until they can get them something that really clicks with their talents and their competencies because the, the, the values that they have is what they want to keep within the organization. Yeah. I I wholly aligned to that perception of of how to, how to operate. So let's, let's wrap this up. And, and uh, I love what a lot of what you were talking about with the leadership, because at the, the whole thing with Jocko in uh, extreme leadership, is what this podcast is about. Leadership is a responsibility, not a position. It doesn't matter what position, what level. If we all work as a team, then we all contribute to the success and the failures that we face every single day. If we can do that, there's another favorite thing that you ended with just a minute ago. It said, uh, we've got each other's back. And being former military, I've got your back is uh, is life or death. And when you live in a culture where we have each other's back, the freedom that you feel to be able to do the things that you do best because you know if you make a mistake, you've got a teammate that's going to grab a hold of that and fix it for you immediately so you don't have to be moving forward with fear. You move forward with confidence that your team is there with you and behind you. 
Yeah, I, I could not agree with that more wholeheartedly. Uh, there's, I, I could rattle off a thousand books that I think would agree with that as well. Uh, the Ben Horowitz books in particular, I, I'm like a huge fan of and live by. There was a more recent one about culture. And I think that that's like, it's ultimately a cultural principle that I think you have to adhere to because, you know, there, there's no success here with individuals working competitively internally against each other. You need a team to, to succeed. So let's let's finish up today, Michael, with my uh, my favorite question at the end of the podcast. And that is, if you could write yourself a letter and send it back to yourself, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago and, and give yourself a little advice, maybe as a, a new entrepreneur, maybe as that finance guy, maybe even in Harvard when you were studying, what would you write? What would you write to Michael? Such a fantastic question. <laughs> um, I think the thing I would ask myself to do in my early entrepreneurial career, I uh, was asked for help more frequently. I think maybe one, I was a little too cocky about my IQ points and figured that I could figure it all out myself. And two, I don't think that uh, I appreciated, you know, the the giants that came before me who had accomplished many of the things that I was trying to do. And I, I, I really wish in my earliest days, and I would say that it was not a cultural principle of ours at Fancy. We were very big on being homegrown for everything we built. And that was a mistake. Uh, that, was, that was a big mistake. And I, I think I, I wish I had learned what I know now earlier, which was just ask for help, find efficiencies, find multiplier effects, You know, make sure to build a network, leverage that network, find software that will do the thing that you're trying to build in-house. Um, there's, yeah, certainly the advice yeah. I would give. Yeah, that's that's great advice, and and it's more specifically not just asking for help, but finding someone you can rely on regularly, and finding a mentor and a coach oh, to yeah. work with you on that stuff. And I certainly had the same challenges when I was growing up, being arrogant and being you know thinking I had the answers, and uh, didn't reach out to mentors and friends and smart people enough. You know, you think you're smart, you don't know the you don't need to ask others for the answer. I've got all the answers, and man, that's that is so self-limiting. It's so self-limiting. So I highly recommend finding mentors, yeah. uh, just finding people who can ask those questions. If, if I can end on that note, I will say I got lucky, very lucky, um, very, very lucky that I found an exceptional mentor at a time in my life where I was being humbled. So I was in investment banking. It was a brutal experience. Uh, there was a lot of late nights and hard work. And at that time, I had found my, my real business mentor who is a, a successful entrepreneur uh, in the investment banking industry. And he, uh, we are close friends to this day. He's, he's actually celebrating his 90th birthday, uh, wow. which I won't be attending. I'm you know, driving back to New York just to attend. We're, he's a, an essential part of my life. And I could not have made many of the life-altering decisions that I have made in my career uh, without his perspective. T at times we've disagreed, but I, you know, having somebody to bounce ideas off of and get an experienced person to give me their perspective has been invaluable. Yeah, that's great stuff, man. You, you, don't, you don't forget those people that help us along the way. So Michael Silverman, CEO of Flip. How do people find your app, Michael? Is this on the app store and on the iPhone and the droids and all that kind of stuff. How, you know, fill me in on the on the technical way that people find this stuff. All all the good places. So, uh, both the Google Play and the iOS App Store. You can type in Flip F L I P P. So it's two P's, where you can download the app, um, or you can go to app.flip.com, app.flipp.com, app.flipp.com. 
on your web browser. And then you can find us on social media at GetFlip, F-L-I-P-P. Excellent. Excellent. We'll put that in the show notes so people can find it there. If you're listening to this podcast, just uh, scroll down and this information will be in the show notes. Thank you, Michael. Appreciate you taking the time with us today to share some of your experiences and and move beyond your biological anthropology degree. <laughs> You've done, done well. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. Thanks again for joining us on Leading from the Front, where leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Take care, be well, and be great. Thanks for being with us on Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath. Remember to subscribe to this podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about the work Dr. Gary is doing, visit statarius.com. S-T-A-T-A-R-I-U-S dot com. Music for Leading from the Front is provided by Peter Katz. For more of his music, visit peterkatz.com. <laughs>